Do please sit down. We read in that fantastic passage from Colossians that all things have been created through Christ. All things were created for Christ. And all things have been restored through Christ. And all things are being returned to Christ. And it is with that fantastic story and the final chapter of it that we're concerned with this morning. Because what I, would want, what I want to point out to you from the passage in Revelation is this. Simply the sheer centrality of the incarnate, the crucified, resurrected, ascended Christ, the Lamb of God, to our hope. Simply what we're going to see is Revelation does not encourage us to believe that everything's going to be okay in the end when God has won. Revelation teaches us to have hope because in the Lamb, God has already won. Let's pray and we'll make a start. Loving Father, who spoke your word and creation was, and then spoke again and redemption was, we pray that you would speak again this morning and fill us with hope and confidence in our security. And let us know that everything is going to be all right. Amen. It really is great to be back at Holy Trinity. It feels often like coming home, so thank you so much, Alan, for inviting me back. Um, Although I do feel, after the tag of most enthusiastic pastoral assistant got given to Chris, I might need to leap around to see if I can wrestle it back from him. Uh, (laughs) um, Just outside... um, Queen's Park tube station, where I've been uh, living for the last year, cut into the, in a, like a hole in the wall kind of alcove. So it's, uh, it's, it's a flower store, very little flower store. And at the back of this flower store, there is um, a chalkboard. And on the chalkboard is written a little message, you know, one of the keep calm messages. Keep calm and keep on loving. Um, and every time I walk past this chalkboard, I think of the Apostle John. I think my girlfriend would prefer that I thought of her when I walk past this, this board, but I think of John. Because one of the major points of the whole of John's writings, when they're all taken together, can sound a little bit like that. Christ has re- revealed the kindness of the Father. Christ has made a way of eternal life possible. So do what he's told you to do. 1 John 3.23 Trust the Son, keep calm, and keep on loving. And when we think about Revelation, we have a very, we have a similar-ish picture. Because Revelation is a book that's built upon this interplay between conflict, suffering, and certainty. I'm sure over the last few weeks you've been in the book. Um, a picture's been built up of a church undergoing persecution, 1 verse 6 and 6 verse 9. Two examples of it. And running parallel to that, there's been this, this, this cosmic battle between God and all the various forces of evil through chapter 12 to 20. But through all this, like a steady drip amidst all this kind of suffering, is the call for Christians to stand firm, to endure. And the church is called to stand firm on the grounds that Christ has already conquered. And this is the way the book opens. 1 verse 5, Christ is the risen one, the ruler of the kings of the earth. It goes on, he is the lamb who was slain and now is alive at the right hand of God. 5.12 And then that fantastic image in 14 verse 1 that 
kind of, I always think it should be made part of a film script, the lamb standing on top of Mount Zion, standing in victory over the beast and the dragon. Now, this is a really surprising thing. Normally, in this kind of, this kind of writing, which is called apocalyptic, you'd expect the call for endurance to be based on something that's going to happen in the future. Um, the kind of feeling is, don't worry, I know it kind of sucks now, but God's going to be doing something pretty dramatic pretty soon, so keep your chins up. Revelation doesn't do that. Revelation does the opposite. It doesn't leave us with a pie-in-the-sky hope. It says the call to endurance is based on what God has already done. Christians are called to endure because in, with, and through Christ, the Father has won. And this is reflected in our passage today because the point of focus all the way through is the Lamb. There's all this other kind of confusing imagery and symbolism happening, but the thing running straight through the passage is the Lamb. Uh, in 21 verse 9, we have the Bride of the Lamb. 21 23, we have the Light of the Lamb. 21 27, we have the Book of the Lamb. And then 22 1 and 4, we have the Throne of the Lamb. And I missed one out. 21 14, the Apostles of the Lamb. Here at the end point of Scripture, at the, at the fulfillment of God's restoration of creation, the spotlight is on the Lamb. And we are given these series of images about the Lamb to help us appreciate the sure foundation upon which Christian hope is built. And over the next few minutes, we're just going to unpack some of those images and grab hold of some of the truth they tell us about the security that's going to help us to keep calm, to trust the Son, and to keep on loving. The first is the Bride of the Lamb. 21 verse 9. And the figure of the bride is introduced in a way that corresponds exactly to the, um, to the whore of Babylon back in 17 verse 1. There's the angel saying, come and let me show you a woman. Um, and the correspondence sort of demands a comparison. We're invited to see these two figures in contrast to each other. And while the whore of Babylon sort of depicted godless humanity, sort of institutionalized rebellion... The bride of the Lamb is the complete, the perfect, the ready people of God. Um, the, the two words come together there, bride and wife. And bride especially um, carries with it the idea of suitability to be married. Um, the implications are of sort of purity, readiness. It carries along with it the idea of a woman beautifully dressed, ready in every possible way to enter a marriage relationship. And for the Lamb... We take the basic orientation from that, from, uh, from John's Gospel, where, he, where John the Baptist introduces the Lamb, introduces Jesus as the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So for John, then, the Lamb is sort of inseparable from the process by which God renders unrighteous sinners righteous. It's sort of John's shorthand way to point to the Father's act of kindness in the Son. The Lamb gathers it all together. So we ask ourselves, why on earth does John use this image that speaks of judgment and death here at the final point of celebration and life? Pride of the Lamb. Well, John is pointing us to the foundation of hope, of the revelation of the Father's kindness in the Son. So 
even here when we're, when we're pointed to this great hope of the future coming together of God and humanity, the categories that scripture asks us to think of it in is in terms of the Lamb, the Father's kindness to set us right. And we put these images together and we have a picture of the church in readiness to be claimed by Christ on account of having been made ready by the death and the resurrection of Christ. And note, he doesn't claim worshippers or servants, he claims a bride. Now I was, at, I was at a wedding last week and it was one of those really good weddings where the bride does the right thing and she turns up late and leaves the groom waiting. Um, and it was due to start at half past one. And half past one came and went. Five minutes went on. We got to 22 and the murmuring sort of built up and built up as it does. We got to quarter two. The bride still hadn't come and the groom was looking admirably calm, I thought. Um, <laughs> but then suddenly the, the music started and the bridal march came in. And at this point in the service, I'm one of the only people who's looking at the front, because I always find the groom's face most interesting rather than the bride's at this point, which always annoys the women of my friends who get married. But, um, and I looked at my friend, and I've seen, I've seen groom's faces that kind of range from delighted to, goodness me, how on earth did I get here, and will I ever be allowed to leave? But this face was a face of pure elation. I've never seen a face like it. And I looked at my mate, Rich, and I thought, Something's gone on here. <laughs> well done, Rich. Um, the joy of claiming the bride that he loved, and if her stories are correct, really worked hard for. Um, this, scripture encourages us to believe, is the way Jesus conceives of taking us to himself. Now, you know, I really don't know whether to be astonished by that or to say, well, of course, that's perfectly proper. After all we, read in, all we read in Colossians, Christ was the one through whom creation was made and who has redeemed creation and for whom creation is made. Scripture wants us to think like this, that we are the, one who, we are the ones who have been made specifically for Christ. So, you know, I don't know whether to be astonished by the fact of that, but I do know I am just happy about that. We are Loved By the cross and the resurrection, Jesus has claimed us for his own. So that means that no matter what mess, what mess is going on in our lives, or how good it is, no matter how far we feel from Jesus, whatever that means, or how close we feel to him, or how many of our prayers seem to be answered, or however many of our prayers seem to rebound off the ceiling and smack us in the face, we are secure in the love of the one through whom and for whom we have been created and by whom we have been claimed. In this image, John is pointing us to the foundation of our hope in the crucified and the resurrected Christ. In this really encouraging image of the church's role as the one claimed as a bride through death and resurrection gives way to this long and sort of heavily symbolic description of the bride of the Lamb. Um, and I won't go into too much detail on the symbolism. I just want to note one fact about it. The bride of the Lamb is a stonking, great, big city. This is not a private, personal hope that's being put forward here. 
This is a communal, collective hope. Christ didn't come to redeem individuals. He came to redeem humanity as a lump and bring this lump from death to life to know him in an eternal relationship because that's why we've been made. Second, we come to the light of the Lamb. We'll speed up from here on. Um, from verses, 20, from in verses 22 through to 24, we have this heavily sort of stylized account of the absence of sun and the light provided by God and the Lamb, the absence of the temple and the presence of God provided by God and the Lamb. And the light in Scripture is often, often gets used to kind of be a sort of a catch-all to describe all the various attributes of God, his goodness, his, his truth, his understanding, his righteousness, and so on. And so here, when the light is absent and our light is provided by God, it's sort of a, a way in which to speak of God's, the intensity and nearness of God's presence, and it's provided through the Lamb. And so we're told something of our future hope, of, some, of something of the closeness of God and the intensity of the Christian's experience of God coming through the Lamb. And now moving into verses 25 to 27, we come to the book of the Lamb where we have this pretty puzzling contrast as we go through because we start with this picture of the city's gates flung wide open in verse, in verse 25. And these gates are flung wide open and people from every nation are coming in. Now this is taking on a picture from the Old Testament back in Ezekiel 48 where there were the 12 gates. The 12 gates were all open. But these 12 gates were open to let the tribes of Israel out. The movement here has been reversed. Here the gates are flung open in this, in this promiscuous and provocative gesture to let the people of the nations in. This is an extravagant announcement, a universal openness of blessing. But verse 27, after that, is a little bit like a smack in the face, because suddenly after this picture of openness, we come across closedness. Uh, the, negative, the, the negative construction used in that phrase, nothing, nothing impure will enter, is particularly strong. It's kind of it's the kind of no that only a mum can give when their 18-year-old kid asks them if they can have uh, a house party and a car on their 18th. It's that sort of no. It's absolutely no chance. Um, so there's absolutely no chance that certain people are going to enter in despite, for in verse 25, the picture of universal openness. The gates are open, but they're only open to certain people only open to those who have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Open only to those who receive life from the Lamb, who trust in the death and the resurrection of the Son. So again here, future hope is being based on the historical events of the death and the resurrection of Jesus in the making known of God's kindness in that one person, in that particular time, all hope is being earthed there. And John doesn't leave us with any other foundation. The reality, is, uh, the reality of salvation is only those, for those who trust in the Son. Finally, we have the picture of the throne of the Lamb in 22 verse 1 and 22 verse 4. And here this theme of receiving life from the Lamb sort of reaches a fever pitch 
Because from the throne of God flows the river of life. And this is another point back to Ezekiel. Let's point back to Ezekiel 47, where the river is flowing out from the presence of God, going all over the land, bringing life wherever it's going. And here again, life is being seen as flowing out from the presence of God. The only difference this time is the lamb is there too. The one who was crucified and resurrected has become the source of life for all. And again, this is a, so it's, a, it's a similar issue, um, image to the Lamb's Book of Life. It, um, it's those who are connected to the Lamb who receive life. This is a hope earthed in the resurrection of Jesus. He is the one who was risen from the dead, and he is the one who has life in himself to share it with us. He is the source of renewed life. The hope, again, is earthed in history. It's not presented as something that we can hope in for the future. Or that it's not something that the future hope is uncertain and left dangling. The future hope is earthed in the event of the resurrection here. And the, and the final image of the throne of the Lamb has some servants around it. And, these, uh, and what's important really about these servants is you'll see they're looking at someone's face as we come into verse 4. They will see his face. But it's, remar- it's remarkably unclear whose face it is they're looking at. And you go back, you see the, the two candidates are God and the Lamb. Um, and it's not just like the people who've written this down have made it a bit unclear for us. It's, I believe, intentionally unclear. It's intentionally ambiguous whether, we, whether these worshippers are looking on the face of God or on the face of the Lamb. And this ambiguity is pointing us to the fact that whenever that this great future hope of looking upon the face of God is not to be separated from the work of the Lamb. These verses are not encouraging any sort of notion of human interaction with God without the Lamb being the crucial part of the arrangement. The future hope is again earthed in what happened in the past, in the making known of God's kindness in the death and resurrection of the Son. And so the cross and the resurrection at every stage through this reading that is telling us something of the future, wonderful future, of wonderful future hope that Christians have, the focus all the way through is put on the lamb. The lamb is running down the spine of what's going on. And, the la- and at every stage where we're being shown something of the wonderful future of Christian hope, the lamb is being pinpointed as that upon which it is founded. So what does John leave us with at the end of the letter? The job's done. Christ has already won. Future hope is secure. So simply trust the Son and keep on loving. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you so much for how this passage points us time and again to the Lamb. It points us to the Son who took on all we are in order to heal all that we are. We thank you so much that our security and our hope isn't founded upon 
a hope uh, isn't founded upon an, an indefinite hope for the future, but it's founded upon the one through whom and for whom we were made and by whom we've been claimed. We ask you'd give us confidence in that hope and keep us strong and secure in our faith in Christ. Amen.